You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Inflation, recession, stagflation. Just what the hell is going on? Hi there, and thanks for tuning in to another Real Vision podcast. So, what the hell is going on? We all want to know. Here at Real Vision, we've debuted a special series called Global Recession Is Everyone Wrong? We've called on the world's best experts, including Juliette DeClerc, David Rosenberg, Peter Zihan, Pierre Anderan, and many more, to try and help us make sense of things. These real experts will be giving Real Vision members in depth, long form analysis on the real stuff that's happening. And best of all, you can get access to all 14 days of Global Recession Is Everyone Wrong for just $1. Yep, $1. So head over to realvision.com slash global recession. That's realvision.com slash global recession to join us on this epic two-week journey of discovery. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Wednesday, May 18, 2022. I'm Ash Bennington, joined by Michael Gayad, CIO and Portfolio Manager at Tarasso Investments. Let's jump right in. Obviously, busy day. Equities just getting smashed right now. Uh, final numbers coming across the tape. S&P 500 off more than 4%, down below 4,000, closing out the day here at 3,924. NASDAQ off uh nearly four and three quarters percent, uh, closing out the day at 11,418. VIX over 30 here. I mean, just an ugly, brutal day. But I want to read something uh, as we get started here. Quote, for whatever it's worth, if stocks are going to crash, conditions are here for it to happen this week or next. This can't persist much longer. That's from May 15th, written by Michael A. Gayad, CFA. Our guest, Michael, welcome back to Real Vision. I appreciate it. You didn't mention treasuries, by the way, which are perhaps the most important thing in terms of today's action. We'll, we'll get into that. We'll kick it off. Let's talk about fixed income. What's driving action today? Yeah, so so as you recall, I, I joined the fantastic Twitter space that you guys were hosting at Real Vision uh, last week. Jim Bianca was there. Yep. And I popped in for a few minutes, and I noted that last week was the first time all year that it looked like treasuries were getting back to how they historically behave during a classic risk-off period, meaning long-duration yields fall. They act as the counter-asset when stocks get volatile and go down. And that continued this year, that continued, uh, rather this week, this continued today as well, with treasuries rallying, long-end yields dropping as the S&P is down hard. This is really, really um, important for people to understand as far as how this year has played out. And I'm I'm going I've been very public in saying this. I've been going through hell with my ATAC rotation mutual fund, my Roro ETF, my Joju ETF, because all my funds are built on the premise, which is validated throughout history, throughout back testing, throughout deeper research, that when you're in a real risk off periods where stocks get volatile, treasuries are the best place to be. And that if you can get that treasury trade right based on certain leading indicators that tend to get ahead of that volatility. You can really do quite well over the long run by avoiding those big declines in equities. The problem this year is that treasuries acted like equities. 
In other words, right. they correlated. Risk-off was risk-on. Now, if that relationship is starting to come back where they act as the risk-off asset, and today's a good example of that, conceivably, we could be in the midst of a crash right here, right now, because that would suggest we're entering risk-off already with volatility elevated. We're entering risk-off already with most equities way off their highs. Yeah. So let's talk about the long end of the curve. Let's talk about TLT, the iShares 20-plus year treasury bond ETF. Yeah, so so historically, I know a lot of people talk about correlations between bonds and stocks. The correlation for me matters that matters the most in my world is when you have that inverse correlation during high-stress periods, that flight-to-safety trade, again, when stocks tend to act volatile. And I'm not saying this haphazardly, but – when you have real risk-off periods when equities collapse and treasuries do well, if you're in treasuries in advance of those big declines, you can outperform the S&P by 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 basis points in a matter of weeks. Consider just today. TLT is up, I think, roughly like 2%. The S&P is down 4%. That's 600 basis points. That's a huge spread against equities. And right. it's not uncommon to see that type of convex move when you have equities go down if you're in treasuries and if you have that flight to safety trade. My, right. he, and, and that really does relate to this other point I keep mentioning that I believe a deflation pulse is returning. I know everyone's talking inflation, but I keep making this point. Inflationary shocks are inherently deflationary because of the speed with which it takes place. Right. Bonds are now, I think, going to start to react off of that. Yeah, so lots to talk about here. Uh, TLT uh, moves in the same direction as the price of treasuries. So you'll see the TLT move in the inverse direction uh, of, of 20 plus year treasury yields. Talking about inflation, lots of stories around inflation today. Uh, UK inflation hit a 40-year high. This is off data coming out this morning, UK time. Uh, and also some of these steep declines that we're seeing in US equities being driven by some really ugly uh, numbers in terms of the trading for uh, stocks like Target, which was off, I think, 27% on the day. Uh, and then also Walmart down, I think, 6 or 7%. Significant, significant declines in these stocks based on inflation. First, talk us through the inflation component of it. It almost sounds like your thesis uh, is a, uh, you know, high prices lead to lower prices. As you see rapid increases in prices, you see deceleration in economic activity. We've seen that in the data uh, and therefore a potential, potential flip into deflation. Is that a rough frame on the thesis and how does it correlate with what we're seeing today in U.S. retailers? So I had um, I put out a, a Twitter poll yesterday and the poll was, uh, are high food prices making you rethink going to the movies? And it's like maybe 48% said yes. And some of the comments were, I don't quite see the connection. The connection is very, very simple. At some point, as these food prices keep getting higher and higher, at some point, as people start getting the sticker shock and start realizing that uh, gas prices are not going down, behavior has to change. Now, spending is no different than any habit. Discretionary spending is no different than any habit. And there's this old saying that it takes 21 days to make a new habit. So it right. takes some time for consumers to start changing their behavior, but not that much time. So given how fast this movement has been in, in inflationary pressure, it's clear that people are going to have to start making choices on where they spend their dollars because even though they're making more money, they're making less after inflation. And all that ultimately is going to not only result in demand destruction, but it's going to bring everything lower in price because at the end of the day, if you don't have uh, – a gradual rate of inflation, 
to allow for companies to respond to it and to allow for consumers to act on it. And if it's a shock, how can that possibly be inflationary long term? Yeah, it's an interesting open question. Just some color around uh, Target and Walmart right now. Uh, Target looks like closing out the day here uh, minus 24.87%, so down about 25%. This is on an earnings miss. Uh, Walmart closing out the day uh, off almost 7%. This, I believe, is off a decline uh, yesterday of 11%. Yeah, and and I think it's a good reminder that uh, nothing is safe in this kind of an environment. Right, including the stalwarts, including the blue chips. Right, and I think, look, we we all know about this gradual deterioration that's been happening beneath the surface in terms of a lot of these innovation names, in terms of small caps, in terms of emerging markets. I've made it very public that I believe the bear market really started February of last year because that's when Brett started weakening, even though it looked like everything was fine as the headline averages kept on pushing higher. But you're seeing a lot of these very big mega cap companies getting taken out to the woodshed. These are billions of dollars of market cap erased in a single day so when you see action like that that tells you something's very very wrong not just with the thesis around the idea that we maybe retouch new highs at some point but also i think it makes people question just how healthy the underlying dynamics of the market were to begin with oftentimes these types of big declines happen largely because there's an over levered player Right, that's on the back end that that pushed these prices to those levels. Well, what happens when everybody's the overlevered player? So I keep I keep making that point on Twitter. It's all one big leverage trade. So if you have everything being so overly levered, yes, you're going to have these gap downs and mega companies on any kind of a disappointment, which then, by the way, will probably cascade into other types of declines and margin calls writ large. Right. So I'm not trying to be overly bearish by any means. Because again, I have not done well up until maybe hopefully now in this in this kind of environment because nothing's really worked. Treasuries have not been the counter asset. But if things are normalizing and then suddenly people start waking up to the reality that, wow, there's a lot more fragility underneath the surface than we think. Yeah, you could have a very, very nasty air pocket. And, and believe me when I say this, the stock market will break inflation faster than the Fed. Full stop. Yeah. By the way, we should say to precisely that point, TLT off about 19% year to date, uh, looks like on a one year basis off about 14%. So obviously some some movement uh, there. Michael, it's a knack for talking about the obvious. Let's talk a little bit about your view of what's happening at the Fed uh, and with policy rate normalization. So normalization is always a, uh, a funny word, I find. Because it's kind of like, well, what's normal? Is $30 trillion of spending normal for U.S. government expenditures? Is 167 of unfunded trillion liabilities uh, normal? Normality is always, you know, in the eye of the beholder, right? Um, This narrative, I think, is unequivocally true that the Fed has been very late to the game to hiking rates. I mean, I put out a tweet in June of last year saying the most responsible thing for the Fed to do now, back in June 2021 was to hike rates, do a surprise rate hike. Look, you, you can't fault the Fed for not seeing the future, in fairness, because nobody can. I don't care how smart you are. I keep making this point. No amount of intelligence increases the clarity of one's crystal ball. Okay, But I do believe that when you have subjective human-based decision-making that is not rules-based, it is very prone to being late, to making errors. Right. right? And I think from that perspective, 
the Fed probably, like a lot of other people, got very sucked into the fear that uh, Omicron would be worse than expected, that COVID would last longer than it actually did in terms of you know the 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 bulk of the the seriousness of it, and they obviously kept the pedal to the metal too long, not realizing that they should probably look at home prices around where they live and the pace at which they're accelerating, not realizing that when you go on Twitter and you see the level of uneducated speculation that was occurring last year and the way people were thinking about investing like it was a game, that that's classic in terms of a sign that you have to take liquidity out of the system yesterday. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, Michael, to precisely that point, I want to take a look at a clip uh, that really drives that home. This is uh, called the Bond Big Bond Investor's View. Uh, it's an interview with Jeff Moore that was done by Rao Pal uh, on Essential Plus and Pro Tier. Let's take a look at that clip right now. The macro story we have today is we have a Federal Reserve that feels like it's late. Whether or not you believe they're late or not, they believe they're late. And so they've been moving fairly aggressively of late. And the bond market, when the Fed is raising rates, is no longer diversified stocks, right? It's diversified stocks when the crisis is happening in stocks. But when the crisis is bond-driven, <laughs> it's not diversified <laughs> anything. It, it's now just selling off because the Fed says we're late. And not just the Fed, even the ECB seems to be changing. President Lagarde, she's starting to talk about you know changing a little bit. Governor Proda in, in Japan He's on the hot seat. He's the one trying to hold 25 basis points for 10-year JGBs. We'll see how that goes. Um, so our macro piece here is that we have more rate fall, kind of rate fall back to the 1990s, right? That's where I, our head is. We've got used to um, interest rate repression, spread repression. We've had the big Fed there, always the Fed put in our back pocket since Chair Greenspan. This is the group, because they're behind in the Fed, that's going to have to suck it up and allow the market – to be a little less efficient, a little bit more volatile, and have a little less price transparency. Exactly what we were just talking about. The Fed is late, uh, and this expectation of a Fed put dating back to Alan Greenspan, uh, how does that shake out? What's your view of the trajectory going forward, Michael? Yeah, it's funny, on the, um, on the idea that the Fed is late, they're so late that in their desire to play catch-up, they'll even be more late okay and here's what i mean by that because you mentioned greenspan the fed i believe was hiking rates up until the 87 crash and then greenspan came in and started lowering rates right i think they are so late to the game that they are right. starting that there's a real risk here and again i go back to the stock market breaks inflation let's explain what you mean by that michael it's this idea that the fed effectively is hiking into a recessionary cycle rather than into uh, sort of a, a bull market rally that starts to look like a bubble. It's typically the reverse. We're in this place when we say they're behind the curve. Uh, it means that they're, you know, the Scylla and Charybdis that they're kind of always trying to steer between uh, inflation and man maximizing uh, employment. Th there really is no way to thread that needle when things get this tight. And, and when leverage is this high because of their own actions, right? It's like I keep going back to this point. 
why do we keep on seeing these crashes seemingly happen, you know, closer in time than what you would normally expect with a normal distribution? Well, because every single response to prior crashes is to re-leverage. You never fix the problem. So you keep making the problem bigger, and then the crash happens again, and every single small butterfly flapping its wings creates the cascading margin call. So my point about the the idea that the Fed is is so late to the game here is that they, they are, to your point, hiking rates probably in a recession that we're already in. Stock markets are responding off of that, and there's been a lot of devastation beneath the surface. All that ultimately is probably going to mean that they have to lower rates again. And by the way, if I'm right that risk-on, risk-off dynamics have returned, that treasury yields on the long end drop, well, that would actually confirm the idea that the bigger fear is going to be the disinflation that all this leverage creates from a longer-term perspective. I really think people have this wrong. When you have so much leverage, the risk is not that the Fed is late to hiking rates. The risk is that the market crashes and they have to then re-lever it up again. Yeah. Um, you know, leverage really is the, the in, in many ways, it's the it's the sine qua non of bubbles, isn't it? It's it's always the factor that seems to be present in some form or another. Yeah, and and you know, I'm 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 fond of always using this line on Twitter. Overconfidence leads to leverage. Leverage leads to crashes, right? And it's always about conditions. You may not know the exact mile marker you might crash your car. But you know that if it's raining, you better slow down, right? And leverage is is the pedal to the metal. So that's not to say that leverage is necessarily a bad thing if it's done properly, if you're not magnifying to the point of risk of ruin. But when the whole system is levered, that means nothing can really go through any kind of major decline without a systemic event. Now, that, yeah. by the way, is an interesting conversation to crypto we can talk about, too. Yeah, much to talk about. I want to jump in and grab some questions because they're starting to come in fast and thick. Uh, and they're questions of people who clearly are following you uh, and your work because they're very dialed in. Uh, first question is, is a question about liquidity events. This is an interesting one. This comes to us from Marty from the Real Vision site. Michael, since everything is going down together, to your point about there being only one trade, is this a liquidity event? Are large funds being forced liquidated? Yeah, it's hard to to really know what's happening in terms of the plumbing, right? But I, it would not surprise me if you have some some major institutions that are going through these VAR shocks, value at risk shocks, these multi-standard deviation types of moves that, that they can't model out from the risk uh, uh, teams. And because a lot of these institutions also tend to be levered and don't realize how much leverage they have because the underlying investments they have are levered, you can see how it becomes very easy to spark a a broader margin call the moment there's any kind of real volatility. Now, again, if in in deleveraging, treasuries tend to behave the best. That's why I'm saying I think what's happening now is really interesting in terms of that thesis that we may only now just be starting the margin call. And by the way, uh, in a margin call, nothing gets spared. Everything tends to correlate to one except treasuries. That means commodities, I suspect, are also going to take a pretty big hit. There's a lot of people, I think, that are under the false notion uh, that energy stocks would uh, be able to keep going up as the broader S and P collapses, or that uh, hmm. a lot of, the, or that oil itself would would stay elevated as the S and P collapses. Time and time again, we've seen when commodities spike, equities collapse, and then commodities collapse. Nothing gets safe in an environment where everything's getting delevered. Yeah, and indeed, to your point, uh, WTI June twenty two crude contracts CLY one uh, off almost uh, almost three uh, percent here in today's trading. Everything, again, except treasuries, more often than not, everything tends to correlate to one. It all goes back to its own one big trade. And and this is really kind of the, the big point. I, I I really want people to, to think about this more and, and to be a little bit more thoughtful in the way they approach their investments. 
Yeah. Everything uh, so is one trade. It's just, I mean, it's just, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another uh, question. Obviously, someone who's following you uh, probably quite closely on Twitter. This one comes to us from Is This It? This is from YouTube. Uh, and the question is, what's going on with lumber prices uh, and the lumber gold ratio? Uh, by the way, for people who aren't following lumber, give us a little bit of a sense of the significance of it uh, in these markets and in the broader macro picture. Yeah, so I left my lumber and gold uh, eyes uh, in the other room. So uh, this relates to a 2015 Founders Award paper. The idea is very simple. Lumber's a tell on housing because the average house has about 16,000 board feet of lumber. So as lumber performs, it tells you a lot about housing starts. It tells you a lot about expectations for housing construction activity. When you compare it against gold, which is more of a risk-off, safe haven asset, actually tells you a lot about risk. Most major crashes, corrections, bear markets. It's not my opinion. This is rules-based, quant-based. I can prove it. I've done a series of tweets on this. Most major crashes, 1987 crash, 1990 housing uh, collapse, uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, two weeks before Lehman Brothers, 2011, 20, include, including the COVID crash. In every single major tail event, lumber weakens in advance, and that tends to warn you of an accident. It hasn't worked yet. I get it, right? But just because a signal hasn't worked in the prior move doesn't mean you should ignore it for the next one. Right? There's always false signals. So, and I've made this point uh, a lot here that you now have a real uniform message happening from an intermarket perspective. Home builders are breaking, lumber is breaking. Mortgage rates spiked. You, you would be foolish to think that housing can stay elevated. Now, I keep making this point. I am very anti-narratives. Uh, and I know that to sound silly because I make narratives myself. You have to make narratives, right? But I'm very anti-public narratives. The narrative that housing has to stay elevated because of this housing shortage is complete and utter nonsense. There's an estimated 3 million housing shortfall that's out there. That's one of the reasons that people say housing has to stay elevated. Well, excuse me, there's 10 million homes, second homes, that are out there also. There's no shortfall if you don't have the second homes. So this is a false narrative, right? So I think housing, aside from the fact that the affordability has gotten so insane here, housing is due to have its own reversion to the mean and that's okay but that's going to have all kinds of implications as far as another wave lower in risk assets because again i go back to most major recessions crashes corrections are preceded by weakness in housing and that is only now i believe getting started yeah i'm looking right now at case schiller uh for national home price index what does mean reversion look like you, you obviously if you look at this uh you see this chart it looks like it troughs about uh about a decade ago it's been you know, roughly up at a 45 degree angle with an increasing tilt, second derivative rising as of about uh, February 2020, going back to the uh, fiscal stimulus. What does a potential mean reversion look like for housing prices? And how would it compare uh, to something like the 2007, 2008 era? Yeah, so good question. So as you know, the challenge with arguing for mean reversion is you have to determine where the mean is, right? <laughs> and, and the mean is always changing, right? That's why this this is such a a hard game, but it's almost like the um, kind of like the definition of profanity, right? You know it when you hear it, right? Right. So, and the thing about mean reversion, which people forget, aside from all those complications, is that for mean reversion to take place, you actually have to go past the mean. You have to have an overshoot. Okay. So my point on housing here is that you're probably due to have a fairly significant deceleration. How does it compare to '07? Not very well, right? Because the dynamics obviously are very different. But keep in mind, there is something which is really interesting, which I think is underplayed. I have a lot of subscribers to the Lead Lagaport, my my premium research service, and I talk to them on the phone. And many are global. 
I talked to two guys in Australia who are subscribers, one guy in Finland, and I asked them separately. They don't know each other. I said, tell me about the housing market in your local areas, in your countries, in your cities. Everything that they said, I could have repeated verbatim for the U.S. Hmm. Okay. So you have those a real global themes? phenomenon here. What, what were those common themes that you heard across geographies? Everybody wanting to have bigger homes because of COVID. Everybody wanting to have a home office because of COVID. Everyone wanting to take advantage of low rates because of COVID. It's all the same factor. It makes sense, right? I mean, everyone was in the same way. As a, as a globe, we, as, a, as a race, we got into this situation where everyone started saying, I need to have more property because I may never be able to go out again. Well, yeah. but, but that's not the case. At least, you know, not fully, right? So that overshoot, that global overshoot, I think is actually probably more of a risk than people realize. Because again, I go back to, even though different countries have different levels of credit creation that come from the housing, their respective housing uh, industries and sectors, at the end of the day, housing is the biggest and real estate is the biggest asset class of all. So if housing, the biggest asset class of all, your biggest collateral starts decelerating at the margin, that has to have all kinds of ripple effects on risk assets. How could it not? You know, it's almost like when the pendulum swings all the way to the left, uh, no one can believe it's ever going to return to center. Yeah, no, that, that's exactly right. And that goes back to narratives, because I think people get too sucked into these very simple stories, and that causes them to believe that the fiction is, uh, is real. And that's where people get into trouble. Yeah. Uh, here's a question that comes to us from Greg in PA. This is from the Real Vision site. How long can risk-off treasury buying continue given negative real yields and the Fed preparing to begin QT, quantitative tightening? Mm. I'll, I'll, I'll make a bet that whatever QT uh, the Fed is hoping for will be uh, stopped pretty soon if equities crash. That's the biggest form of quantitative tightening would be a reverse wealth effect. So it's an interesting question. How long does the risk on risk off dynamic last? My hope is that it lasts for a while because, I, again, I need it for my, my funds, right? That's what I created the strategy around. But I do think that if the narrative shifts from inflationary fears to slow down deflation pulse and all this, um, the Fed can try all it wants to uh, unload its balance sheet. Good luck doing that if credit spreads are blowing out. Good luck doing that if you have global margin calls. I just I, – they've tried this so many times before. It never works out well. What's to say this time is going to be different? By the way, when we're probably already in a recession, if not entering one. I, 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 again, it goes back to they're so late to the game that um, that they kind of have no choice but to just keep playing it. Yeah. I'm curious how you think about the, well, I was going to say pleasure-pain calculus, but it's really it's really pain-pain calculus, right? In other words, how does the Fed, uh, the FOMC specifically, try and take in data and balance out how much inflation is hurting families uh, and ordinary Americans, and it has been brutal, versus how much pain uh, we can endure with significant wealth effects from massive equity uh, market declines? I mean, what, what are those numbers? What are those thresholds? Or, what does the process or thinking look like when they're making those decisions? So I'll, I'll, I'll venture to you that no matter what, they can't possibly figure what that is, right? Because when you have so much leverage, the data will act with such a lag while the average person on the street feels it faster that they're always going to be off cycle, right? Cycles move faster than ever before because of leverage, because of 
the speed with which things uh, permeate throughout multiple economies. So the Fed gets data. The average person feels it because it's hitting their pocketbook right away. The data doesn't really quite fully capture that, or at least if it does, it does so with lag. And then guess what? The 21 days habit kicks in. The end data then changes, and then the Fed has to now reassess based on new data, right? So, so we're in this kind of really, I think, interesting environment too, where the Fed keeps saying it's data dependent, but the data is moving faster than they can. We're going to take another quick break and be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Right. Uh, you know, so, so much uh, to take in here. And here's a question that's interesting. Uh, uh, Gregory from the Real Vision site, uh, he wants to put you in uh, Jay Powell's job, uh, Michael. And he asks, so, so what is Michael's solution for the U.S. economy going forward? It's kind of an interesting question because it, it teases out uh, perhaps the, the counter narrative of what's happening what would you uh, like to see happen? And how do you see the disconnect between that view and what's actually unfolding right now in markets? The truth uh, is that the best thing to do is to go through pain. And I hate to sound dramatic about that, but you're talking about decades of a mismanaged economy that was never really fully capitalist, that decided that debt didn't matter that kept a lot of zombie companies around, which really shouldn't be, which resulted in a lot of inefficiencies, and resulted in all the wrong kind of behaviors for what you would want to see in an efficient economic system. The only way you solve that is through some kind of severe pain. Now, that's not a very appealing option. Okay? Because, and by the way, it's not an option that you could ever do. Austerity never gets somebody in office. Right? right. I mean, it's like whatever happened to austerity coming out of 2011 with Europe? It just suddenly disappeared because whatever it takes, and the ECB is going to buy up all the bonds. Oh, and by the way, Greece and Italy uh, and all the pigs from back then that were the, the problem childs of the Eurozone from a debt perspective, their yields went to all-time lows, despite insane liabilities on that end. So going back to the question, sometimes you have to let things cleanse, right? And it's better to go through the pain short term than go through this... Malay's longer term, where you keep on re-leveraging, and it ultimately makes the risk of miss of, of missing the black swan even higher, right? So there are no easy answers to this situation that we're in. I, I, I often wrestle with this kind of more existential question of can democracy exist when uh, every single politician simply promises more to get voted in, which means debt doesn't matter, right? You have to make debt matter. That's the answer. That's what you have to do if you're the Fed chair. Michael, I get awfully nervous when a financial analyst uh, begins an answer with, you have to wonder if democracy can exist. No, I, I'm sincere about that because, again, it's like when I say democracy, democracy with capitalism, right? That's really what I'm referring right. to, right? Because it's, again, right. if every single politician gets voted in because they promise more and you never pay off prior liabilities, it's like even the whole tax the rich you know, narrative that's out there. Okay, fine. I get that. But if you increased taxes are never used to pay down prior debts. It's always used as justification to take on more debt. That right. is insanity. 
And the only way you can fix that is if you have a Federal Reserve chair and a Federal Reserve committee that says we have to stop the nonsense. We have to actually employ discipline. And by the way, I get it. That's what the Bitcoin community wants. And they're not wrong on that. I have a different take on how you get there. I think you have to make it a rules-based Fed as opposed to anything else. But yeah, the reality is you have to enforce discipline. This country and most countries can no longer respond to crises with stimulus. We have to get discipline in the system. Yeah. Talking of discipline and to come back to something you mentioned earlier on this show, uh, you mentioned crypto. I wanted to tell folks out there about Crypto Unwrapped. Uh, this is a new show from Real Vision. It's a deep dive into the major stories that are happening in the crypto space. It's live on Real Vision every Wednesday uh, at 10 a.m. And I wanted to show a clip uh, that talks to something that you spoke to earlier, some of the volatility we've seen in digital asset markets around Bitcoin uh, and with specific reference to Terra. Let's take a look at the clip. It's been quite a week. Um, uh, so we've learned a, a bit more uh, over the last uh, seven or so days. Um, Turns out Terra's uh, Bitcoin sell-off, um, they sold off roughly 80,000 Bitcoins and have roughly 300 left. Um, there was initial shock to the price of Bitcoin, but it eventually rebounded to the 30K level. Um, this was something that Bitcoin maxis are definitely uh, championing as um, part of the uh, true nature of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, in terms of regulation, uh, there's reports that South Korea is uh, reportedly starting an investigation into what went on with Terra and Luna. And amidst all of that, Duquan is still trying to see how Luna can be relaunched. Um, Vitalik, CZ, and several other luminaries of the crypto space um, are supporting a FDIC-style or FDIC style reimbursement of funds. Um, to the Terra and Luna holders um, with reports uh, discussing that they could be reimbursed up to 250000 um, But that's still uh, in the works and a lot more coming on that. So volatility retracements across the board. Uh, Bitcoin on my terminal right now down to 29107 Luna just destroyed three leading zeros in front of the penny on the price. Uh, ugly stuff. Michael, what are your thoughts about what we're seeing right now in crypto in digital assets? So I go back to um, everything is one big lever trade. And I do believe that a lot of the crypto space is no different. And now we can argue from here to tomorrow about technology. My concern is not about te technology. My concern is always about human behavior because that ultimately is what determines everything. Okay. So with what happened with Terra, Luna, and what happened with the entire space as far as this complete collapse because of now suddenly people realizing that stable coin is a great marketing term, but there's nothing stable about it. Just like, by the way, store of value is a great marketing term, but there's nothing that's consistent about store of value when you have tail risk. Okay, What, what I think happens, unfortunately, is it goes back to this point that people get so sucked into these narratives, they don't bother to question and they don't bother to size risk properly. They simply fall for the story. And... What ends up happening is when you fall for the story, you get that overconfidence, you get that leverage, and then suddenly things collapse. Again, it's not something that's just related to equities or crypto. This is just in general across all asset classes. What I see with the cryptocurrency space is very simple. I think there is still a lot of uneducated speculation that is levering up to a degree which makes completely no sense, which makes these crashes continue to happen. And I've made this point, and I know, uh, you know, Look, at, at Toroso, we run the blockchain ETF, BLOK. I'm not against the space at all, right? I mean, that's our fund, okay? But what I will say is that um, when you have this type of conviction that 
you're going to have this space, this store of value, digital asset, uh, work tomorrow, literally. And you have this kind of conviction that you can lever it up so that it, you can benefit the most when it works tomorrow, literally. That's where people get into trouble. Because if that's what causes that leverage, that conviction, that's what causes the crashes, which, by the way, delays the inevitable adoption by institutions. I don't think a lot of the Bitcoin maxis have really thought through the implications of words when you talk, talk about the cryptocurrency space. Because if you simply say this thing which has 50% declines, I'm not talking about Bitcoin necessarily, but just whatever it would be, any digital assets, this thing which has 50% purchasing power declines in, in a week. Uh, this is a store of value or that this is something that you should be 100% of your net worth in. I have a problem with that because it actually f makes their cause uh, damaging longer term. You can't get institutional adoption without lower volatility. You can't get lower volatility unless you frame things properly so people don't fall for the narratives that cause them to leverage that causes the crashes. This could be like really your sort of Triffin paradox, points. Michael. Sam? This could be like your Triffin paradox. It, it's a really... Um, I just think it's really important that people frame things properly, right? There's risk in every asset class. Store value is not a true term. There's nothing that's a true store value because everything has tail risk because the Fed forced us to be in a world where everything has risk. I, I, I'm on board completely with the notion that we need a better monetary system that is rules-based, that probably is finite, that's more like a Bitcoin standard, more like a gold standard. I yeah. disagree entirely with the notion that it happens tomorrow and that you should be all in on that. Right. Michael, I know we've run a little long here today. I know you've got to get jumped to do your next uh, Twitter stream, uh, but I wanted to just get your final thoughts, some key takeaways, because obviously it's been a big day, lots going on, something you've been thinking about for a while. Yeah, so again, if the most important thing in my world is if treasuries act risk-off, which it looks like they're starting to. I, I, and it's been noted by a lot of people, you have not had that real flush, that real capitulation. I don't believe the system can survive under an environment like the 70s, where you have rising rates and falling asset prices, because you end up having a double whammy of higher interest expense and less capital gains. Okay, So when you have this much leverage in the system, the system cannot survive with 60-40 being dead. That is the harsh reality. Mm. Now, if that's the case, if you go with me on that thesis, then if you're going to bet that stocks and bonds both keep selling off, in particular treasuries, that to me is an end of the world bet. And we've seen time and time again Betting on the end of the world is a very hard trade because it only happens once. So I think from that perspective, be careful, size appropriately, don't get sucked into narratives, realize it can get a lot worse before it gets better, and let's hope that some of these relationships normalize because if treasuries do what, what, what they've been doing the last week and a half or so, especially today, well, that's actually a really good thing that would suggest diversification is going to make a comeback. And that ultimately is the ultimate free lunch. Michael, terrific framework here. Great big picture structural analysis of everything that's happening, uh, in addition to the tactical framework for what you see happening in markets right now. Always a pleasure to have you on the show, man. We got to get you back more often. I love you guys. Love Real Vision. Believe me. Thanks again for uh, joining us. And thank you for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Maggie Lake will be back tomorrow with Peter Bookvar. Final point, the clip you saw uh, is a slice from the new show we're running on Real Vision, uh, Crypto Unwrapped. Just like RVDB, we take a deep dive into what's happening today, but this time focused on crypto. It's live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Eastern time, and you can watch the inaugural episode on Real Vision right after Real Vision Daily Briefing finishes. Thanks again for watching, everyone. <laughs> 
What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.